New York was really my world of writing. I mean, I was writing. Writing was my lover. It was my, you know, it was, it was my life. And so I put everything into my writing. That was poet Paul Teal. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, and this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. Paul Teal has been a figure on the St. Louis literary scene for many years, which is why University of Missouri-St. Louis awarded him an honorary doctorate this year. He's a poet, a writer of biographical prose, and he's been a great convener of writers and readers. He founded an annual tribute to beat poets and has put on other readings, put together a collection of short stories by St. Louis writers called Under the Arch, and lots of other stuff. He was also there 50 years ago in June when the LGBTQ communities of New York City rose up and rebelled at police harassment at the Stonewall Inn, sparking the gay liberation movement. Along the way, Paul has brushed elbows with luminaries of the poetry world in San Francisco and New York. He has many stories to tell. A few months ago, he put out a call for participants in a writer's group made up exclusively of published authors in St. Louis. I asked him if he was successful in getting that group together. Yes, it has. We meet twice a month, and it's been going pretty well. I'm fascinated by the idea of a casual writer's group that is just of published authors who happen to live in this area. Apparently, there's enough talent or, moreover, enough accomplished writers in this region to have a group like that. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, yeah. There's St. Louis has uh, got a lot of writers in it. St. Louis has always been a, a great city for writers. Uh, sometimes they don't stay here, uh, but I like St. Louis. You know, I lived in San Francisco and New York, and both towns are really great towns. But uh, St. Louis is—it's uh, eh, got a, a flavor of its uh, of its own, and I like that. Did you go from here to San Francisco? Well, I did undergrad. I did graduate work in Montana. Then I came back here to work on my doctorate at Washington U. And I'm an ABD, all but dissertation. I decided I'd rather be a, I was studying geology. I decided I'd be a, rather be a minor poet than a world famous geologist. <laughs> and I you know, wound up being a minor poet. So, you know, you can be as minor as you want to be. I had heard of San Francisco as, a, as sort of a center on the West Coast. And I went out there and. Uh, what year would that have been? 1963. Oh, yeah, it was a great time to be there. I lived in North Beach for a while, and uh, that's, that's you know, where the beats hung out. And everyone was discovering this cheap place to live in the Haight-Ashbury. So I lived in this old Victorian. It was an, had been an old Irish rooming house. And the guy who was in charge, he was sort of a uh, folk singer. His little brother, though, was starting to, starting to do some rock music. He, had a, he was a guitarist. Uh, the folk singer was Rodney Albin, and the guitarist was Peter Albin. And Peter had gotten together with a couple of other people, and they formed this little group, Big Brother and the Holding Company. <laughs> and finally, they got a hold of this vocalist they thought would help them out a lot. And my God, did she screech. Uh, I was up in my little poet's attic and I would hear this woman screeching and I thought, oh my God, I can't stand that. So I found an old 45 by Garnett Mims, Cry Cry Baby, and I played that over and over again. The woman turned out to be Janis Joplin, of course, and Cry Cry Baby is one of the songs that she uh, 
delivered and was successful, so I guess I had my little part in influencing Janis Joplin. You put on that tune to... To, to annoy her. To, <laughs> to crowd her out, right? But she yeah. liked it. Yeah, she liked it. Now, Paul, when you lived in San Francisco, I know you would sometimes get out of the city to go do some hiking on Mount Tamalpais, and you wrote a lovely piece about that. It was published in 2017 in the Prairie Wolf Press Review. Um, I wonder, would you, could you read some of that to us? Maybe just read the last part of it or so? Uh, take it away, Paul. There was an instance on Tamalpais, quite special, on Bellinus Ridge. Toward evening, sensing that I was alone on the mountain, I shed my clothes, placing them carefully on the ground. I gradually moved my arms, my body facing where the sun had recently set on the ocean. The landscape provided a depression, a large shallow bowl for my dance. Visible yet secluded, I gave permission to the gods to invade my soul, inspire me. Often, I believed part of me was a witch, a soul in touch with nature. The, the removal of the raiment of civilization gave me new authority. I let go, releasing more with each step, each swinging gesture of my arms. I was in a trance. It was lovely to be able to let my arms and legs do the thinking, peaceful yet exciting, becoming one with nature, one with my basic core. Everything so right I could go on dancing into the night. Now it all made sense. Suddenly I felt a presence. Was someone watching me? Were there people sneaking up to watch what they would perceive as foolishness? I didn't care. I was there, bare and moving some force taking me onward. As I swung one arm up, I pivoted slightly to see if I indeed had an audience, then faced them fully. In front of me were about a dozen deer, a short distance away, watching me intently. I continued dancing. After all, they were here to see me. They stood there, motionless, watching me dance, not a noise. They were hypnotized, as though everything was as it should be. Tell me about the, the literary scene in San Francisco in the, in the mid and late 60s. The real center, of course, was City Lights Bookstore, which was founded by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. When I was in North Beach, I went. it was right around the corner from where I lived in the bachelor's quarters. It was there I discovered Allen Ginsberg, and, uh, and when you say discovered, what do you mean? I discovered his writing. Okay. But were those folks around? Uh, later on, yeah. I, I would see Alan all the time in, in San Francisco and also New York. And finally, when I was in uh, my European tour, I was in Venice. And at that time, it was in November, Venice had a flood. The flood was encompassing all of St. Marco Square so that people actually had rowboats in the square. And I was wandering around, and I hadn't spoken English for about a month and a half. I speak both French and German some. But all of a sudden, I saw this bearded guy sitting on the monument to the plague. 
And that was Allen Ginsberg. And I thought, oh, my God, I know he speaks English. So I grabbed him and we started rapping and we got along pretty well. But at the time, he was staying with Ezra Pound, the uh, writer, and waiting for words of wisdom from the master, who wasn't speaking too much, actually. And uh, finally, he said, after about 45 minutes, he said, Paul, I've got to go. I've got to go back and see Ezra. So you sort of saw him around on the scene in New York, but didn't, oh, miss, God, didn't yes. miss his yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was, he was ubiquitous. He was everywhere at one time, it seemed. But the Beats were very influential oh, God, yes. in forming your aesthetic, right? So what, what, what appealed to you? Well, I like the Beats. I like their everyday speech. There's a lot of poetry in William Burroughs' work, and I liked William Burroughs very much and was very pleased that he was from St. Louis. So I thought, hey, you know, we've got a connection here. Eventually, I started writing to Burroughs. He was in Tangier, and we would send postcards back and forth. Just introduced myself as a fellow St. Louisan writer, and that was it. And uh, he would send me nice little postcards now and then. What did you chat from about? From Tangier. How you doing? You know, uh, you know, everyday stuff. Also, another poet I liked was uh, Edith Sitwell. Edith Sitwell sort of made fun of poetry, did poems making fun of poetry, and I sort of liked that sort of distance that she had, because poets a lot of times do take themselves too seriously. And you've written a book of sonnets called Nasty Sonnets, and they <laughs> they are indeed nasty in terms of some of the language and some of the subject matter. One of the cleaner ones is called Poet Modi. And it's a chance for you to sort of poke fun a little bit at that poet sort of persona. Uh, would you read that for us? Poet Modi. He curses his existence, thankless clod. His brain produces little more than shit. Reviewers have a field day. Friends applaud diluted poems, feigning worthy wit. They're kind and wish he'd brighten up his scope. But that's art, they think, accepting drear. And he, deluded soul, proceeds to mope, believing misery the lot his peers have cultivated. Keats and Poe and Plath, Hart Crane and Sexton, oh, protracted list of suffering genius, dar the aftermath affected lives have sought. From gift to twist, he needn't worry. Better now enjoy the moment, boy. There's not much to destroy. That's mean. So how did you find yourself relocating to New York City? The poets I admired, the beat poets, almost all of them were from New York and had a New York sensibility. And I thought, oh, my God, that's where I need to be. That's where I need to write. So I went there, found a room in the village on Waverly Place, which, by the way, was around the corner from Stonewall. New York was really my world of writing. I mean, I was writing. Writing was my lover. It was my, you know, it was, it was my life. And so I put everything into my writing in New York. I got involved with somewhat with the poetry project at St. Mark's in the Bowery. Uh, that was uh, founded by a couple of writers. And at the time, Ann Wallman was in charge of it. It was nice. They would have readings at St. Mark's in the Bowery. Uh, all sorts of people read there. And Auden, the great poet, lived near w. there. W.H. Auden. W.H. Auden, right. 
lived near there, and he would sit in the back. There was this sort of white-haired presence in the back, and everyone knew who he was, but they didn't bother him because he was the great man. So did you begin giving readings of your, your own at, at that time? There was a fellow that I met who was doing readings at Hunter College, and the series was called Decadent Poets of New York. And he thought, God, there's no one, no one more decadent than you, Paul. So I gave a reading at Hunter College, and I grabbed a couple of people to read with me. And then I also grabbed one of the Warhol people. I knew some of the Warhol people in New York. You felt like you were courted by Andy Warhol at one, at one oh, time? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I had long hair, dark, and dark eyes, very intense, and um, was tall. Had a, uh, I also, all, always wore a black turtleneck and green fatigues. That was sort of my outfit. And uh, I sort of looked like the poet Modi of the village, which I regarded myself as. And Warhol wanted to, uh, he thought, hey, that would be an interesting person to include in my entourage. But I also sold poems in the street, and he thought that was a bit, you know, what? déclassé. That wasn't, that wasn't done. That wasn't hip. And I didn't give a damn. So he liked the turtleneck. He didn't like the selling the poems on the street. Yeah, exactly. Andy Warhol was, like Allen Ginsberg, Allen, Andy Warhol was everywhere. He was, he was sort of like the white ghost in the distance. Uh, never said a word, but he, he was with his people. And um, I was in a couple of movies. One of the movies... Warhol movies? No. Oh. I was in one of the movies called uh, What Do You Say to a Naked Lady, an Alan Funt feature film. And another film was The Girls Who Do, which was an exploitation film. And there I was, there was a poster of me in my underwear on 42nd Street, and I thought, I've arrived. I thought, I wish the people back at Normandy High School could see me. And they would be offended, of course, but that's, that's even better. Would you have liked to offend them? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. I regarded myself as a lyric poet, not really a beat poet. I was writing some poetry in uh, sort of like here and there, uh, great lines here, great lines there, great lines here, great lines there. They were all over the page. Did you write from your personal experience? A lot of my poems were impressions of New York. It was impressions here and there of New York, of life, of New York, of, this, of the weather, not connected. You are listening to Cut and Paste. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, and we will listen to some of that poetry in just a moment. Welcome back to Cut and Paste. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. Before we get back to my conversation with Paul Thiel, why don't we listen to a little more of his poetry? This is a piece that was published in Extensions. Uh, the title has a word in it that he made up. It's called Vilbethine Loveliness. And he says it typifies the style he was working with at the time, back in the late 60s, early to mid 70s. He didn't have it on him when he came into our studios, so I asked Paul to call me later and read it over the phone. And that's what he did. It's a long piece. Uh, this is Paul reading just the last little bit of it. Why don't we give this a listen, and then we'll get back to the studio conversation. Turn toward the retching light, searching. Flatten me against my desires. Wander on to Araby, dark, penal night. So long that a turbaned queen might quite nod to appropriate another region. Oh, it's a legend, all right. My mother told me. No, no, it's elaborate. She knew nothing. It's almost over. Don't ever forget. Little else has been done. 
even untold misery gets told. Fog, night, red neon light, essence, Helen, that rests on nothing without impression. To be born, but, yes, it's wrong. Egypt, why, what a pleasant aridity. Stares at it a long time. Nobody, no one, absolutely nothing. Is that enough? Oh, chimney crown, that one and only deep time, deep, deep, and so on, so on, chimney, so on, and so on, chimney. Stares at it a long time. Satellite of unconcentration. Wastebasket finishes the word. I asked Paul to talk more about the scene in New York around the time of the Stonewall Uprising in 1969. Oh, the East Village was great. How, how so? Well, you had all these interesting poets living in sort of like dungeon apartments all over the East Village. And uh, I knew several of the poets over there, and uh, we would get together. And uh, the West Village, you know, it was that's Greenwich Village. It was, it was kind of stayed. But the East Village, that, that night, it was a Friday night, really, there wasn't much happening over there. So I thought, well, I'll go back to the West Village. You know, it's, nothing really happens there, but it's safe and it's home. And there in the street, on, on Christopher Street, where the Stonewall was, there was a group of people all around, yelling and screaming. In that piece you wrote about this period of time, the first couple nights of the Stonewall Uprising, um, which, by the way, won an award given by Antioch University called the Diana Woods Award. Why don't you read some of that to us? Um, Why don't you pick up at the point where you have arrived on the scene and you start talking to one of the folks that you see there? What's happening anyway? They tried to grab one of our sisters. Enough is enough. He then tossed a few copper coins toward the door of the Stonewall, shouting, Here's money, pigs. You haven't paid off enough? What's this all about, I continued. They wanted to arrest one of our sisters, and we fought back. Finally. We just want to have a good time. They don't need to do that. Raiding us all the time. Pigs. And we were dancing. It was lively, man. Pigs, he yelled again. You were in there? Sure. I'm there almost every night. I haven't seen you, honey. I've noticed you. You do look familiar, though. I've been in there. Not much, though. Butch thing like you much go to the trucks. That's where all the leather queens are now. Scared of this, I guess. Dykes and us Nellies. That's who's fighting the pigs. Pigs, he shouted, mentioning the word set him off again. What happened? I told you. We were dancing, having a good old time. The pigs come in, grab one of the dykes, Sheila, who was giving them lip, and they were going to arrest her. That's when we started fighting back. Don't you touch our sister, I yelled at them. We're getting tired of this. We don't have to take it anymore. They raid us every week, almost. I know that Stonewall pays them, but they still raid. Damn pigs. How'd you wind up out here? They chased us out like they always do when they raid, and they were going to hold that sister, but we fought them and brought her out with us. Then they closed the door, and then we started yelling. They're barricaded in there, behind that door. Chicken sit. Chicken pigs. He then grabbed a parking meter and tried to rock it back and forth. What are you doing? I'm going to pull this out and get at those pigs. 
I envisioned his using the parking meter as a battering ram, but his efforts merely succeeded in loosening the meter a bit. There was no way he was pulling that thing out of the ground. It was just as well. I found out later that the police had their pistols pointed at the door and would have shot anyone trying to get at them. Coins got tossed more regularly now. Apparently the, coof, the crowd received the message. It was all a matter of payoff to the police. Not getting enough payoff, holding up the owners for more. And it wasn't that Mr. and Mrs. Strait thought the faggots weren't sick, but this was a fun way to begin a weekend, a pleasant July, June evening, and who knows, it might be in the papers. The time the queers got balls, and those damn police, they always carried things too far. I asked Paul to talk a little more about that first night of the Stonewall Uprising. People wander in the village, especially on a weekend, and so all sorts of straight people, regular people who thought, always thought the, the, the faggots were kind of, eh, you know, they're kind of weird. I mean, we don't want anything to do with them, but hey, they're doing something now. So they thought, hey, this is fun. So it was an event. And, uh, Would you have been using that word at the time? That, I mean, that's, that still would have been a, a slur at that point, right? I mean, it wasn't, no, no, no. We call ourselves faggots. At that time? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. God, yes. That's, that's not a, that's not, I still don't regard that as a negative word. Finally, the, the police called for reinforcements, and they finally came, and they, they cleared the streets. I, by, by that time, I had gone. But then the next day, there was a phalanx of police uh, with big shields and everything coming down the street. And um, a couple of faggots started doing a can-can in front of them. <laughs> and you could just imagine this sort of like this straight mentality. These, so kicking how their, dare these, kicking these their faggots, feet in the air. you know, do this in front of us. They sang a little song, We Are the Stonewall Girls. We wear our hair in curls. We wear no underwear to show our pubic hair. And yeah, it was, it was, it was something. That was civil disobedience, right? That was in the face of, you say, a, a phalanx of... Well, they didn't get arrested because they, they stayed in front of the cops and they gradually dispersed later on. It was. It and the, was. The chaos continued for a few days. Yes, right? it and continued for a few days, which was something I found very interesting in your description of these scenes. Was you said sometimes it seemed festive in these confrontations. Oh yeah, oh yeah. New Yorkers love love a party. They love a spontaneous party, spontaneous expression of joy, or anger, or whatever. That's that's New York. That's the wonderful thing about the city. Then they started some gay liberation meetings, and, and I went to them, and I wasn't, unfortunately, I, I didn't feel connected. I, I was a poet. I was distant. You know, it, uh, I, I liked seeing things, but I don't like being bored. Fifty years have passed since that night. Is it something you, you reflect on? Oh, I, there's always regrets. I mean, I, I regret in a way that I didn't get involved with gay liberation, but I hate meetings. I really despise meetings. I've missed a lot of things by not wanting to go to meetings, but I don't want to go to meetings. But you have talked about, you said, yeah, it wasn't my thing despite the eventual amazing outcome of it all. Yeah. Talk about what's, what's the amazing outcome. Oh, the amazing outcome is, is gay liberation and, and uh, I mean, marriage being, being legal. I mean, this is just bizarre. And in San Francisco, uh, 
there were flyers dispensed in the bars by policemen wanting to wanting to have some gay policemen. You know, that's that would be unheard of years before that. I mean, it, it amazing things happened as a result of that. So, Paul, how and and why did you wind up moving back to St. Louis? I was living in San Francisco, and I was getting kind of so. This is after New York. You after New York, I went back to San Francisco. Yeah, I uh, decided I wanted to come back to St. Louis, and uh, I went into real estate, which I had always. Where thought. did that come from? I liked houses, and I never had a home. I was I was crashing here and crashing there, living in my van and on the West Coast. I thought, ah. It'd be nice to have a house. So eventually I uh, bought a house and decided I really liked houses. So I would, uh, I thought about selling real estate in San Francisco, but you couldn't really work as a realtor when you're living in your van. I didn't have a phone. (laughs) Those are key, key parts of the package, right? Yeah, right. So I came here and I did that for years, and then I. And so you you moved to to St. Back to St. Louis when? Moved to back to St. Louis back in '85. Was was a. was this a hospitable place for 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 a gay man and, and openly? Oh yeah, yeah. I, you know, I've always sort of been basically in the closet. Uh, I, I'm not terribly open. If people ask me, I say, "Yeah, so what?" You know, it's it's not it's my not my essence the essence of my being. Mm-hmm. And then uh, back in '97, then both Allen Ginsberg. And William Burroughs died within a few months of each other. And my dear friend, uh, Mike Castro, who has passed away, he was the poet laureate, he said, let's, let's do something for Alan. He said, let's, let's sit Shiva. I said, yes. So I got a bunch of writers I knew and that I'd heard of, and we got together and we did the, uh, on the Day of the Dead, we did a reading. Our first reading was at uh, Left Bank Books, and we had a pretty good crowd. I had uh, all sorts of people reading, I think. Agnes Wilcox, who's a theater person. That event became a... Yeah, it became a yearly event, and eventually uh, someone else took it over because uh, I was getting kind of tired of it after a while. What did you call it? Day of the Dead Beats. Day of the Dead uh, Beat Reading, yeah. Well, that's a wonderful thought of you coming back to to St. Louis. Oh yeah, and sponsoring an event like that with folks that you'd actually been around and interacted with, and create, yeah. created some work around. I was also involved in the poetry center. I said, "Hey, let's get a reading. Let's get a big, gigantic reading." Uh, we got the Duck Room at Blueberry Hill. We had we must have had hundreds and hundreds of people in in the Duck Room. So it sounds like you have found an audience when you have. When you've wanted to throw readings, yeah, c- convene writers for one reason or another in St. Louis. Yeah, I have sort of a New York push behind me. What does that mean? It's a drive that you get in New York, you know, chutzpah, I think it's called. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, that's me. Uh, I've been beaten down a little bit. Uh, St. Louis is, is, is a wonderful city, but it's not a city to, uh, for people with a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> that's okay. Do you think it's, I'm not, retiring. it's not, re- not received as well? It's not received as well. No, 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 no. <laughs> You're retiring from the, from reti- the chutzpah. I'm retiring from <laughs> a lot of that, yeah. Tell me about Under the Arch. How did you find yourself collecting a book of stories about St. Louis? 
Well, I had written a book of uh, poems uh, of rather nasty sonnets that I called Nasty Sonnets. And it just didn't seem to get anywhere. So I thought, well, what would work? Let's, how about short stories? I'll get a bunch of writers to write some short stories. And I, I got a bunch of writers. I mean, Dakin Williams, Tennessee Williams' brother, uh, William Gass. Uh, I got all sorts of writers to submit stories to me. And Mary Try, who's a wonderful writer teaching at UMSL, our, several of her students submitted stories, and they were very good. And so I put, I put them all together, uh, edited it, and then published it under uh, Antares Press. Antares is the red star in Scorpio. Then I managed to promote it, and uh, we went to a second uh, printing, which was nice. But I still have some of the books left. What are your, your literary activities these days? These days I'm working on my uh, memoirs of uh, my life in the 60s in uh, San Francisco and also in New York. There's a lot of tales to tell. Some of them rather sordid, but what the heck, that's life. <laughs> so that's a, that's a project you've been working on for a while, I think. I've been working on that for a while, and now I've got to sort of find a, uh, an agent or a publisher that's interested. And in I'm not going to publish it myself. I don't have the energy anymore for that. Is the manuscript at the point now where you're ready to look around for that kind of representation? Yeah. Yep. The manuscript is pretty well. Th- I, need, I need to do some editing, but it's, it's, it's there. And it's, it's done as a series of short stories. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Now, now to get someone interested in it. That's yeah. The University of Missouri-St. Louis recently honored you with an honorary doctorate. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that a meaningful moment for you? That was very nice. Unfortunately, it came on the heels of my being uh, getting the announcement that I had metastatic bone cancer. So it was sort of like, uh, well, yeah, I guess that's nice. But that was that was it was nice. It was nice, and and I'm glad, and and, and I deserve it. What the hell? You've survived an earlier an earlier challenge with cancer, didn't you? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was 13 years ago, and. Uh, then all of a sudden it flared up again, and uh, that's life. I mean, that happens, and uh, I'm fighting it now. That was poet Paul Teal. I'm Jeremy Goodwin, and this has been Cut and Paste, produced with help from our executive editor, Shula Newman. You can find Cut and Paste at stlpublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts.